Hi everybody. Welcome to Stories from a Survivor. We're in season two, episode two. Lucky for you. We're going to be talking about burnout today. And I know a lot of people use the term and throw it around pretty loosely, but I'm going to dive a little bit deeper and um, talk a little more about how it feels to actually experience burnout, which if you've survived anything and all of us have survived something, you've probably went through a phase of extreme burnout. Now, there are different um, ways that you can experience it, and one of the ways is um, actually directly connected to compassion fatigue. That happens a lot to service people, healthcare providers, as you know, um, firefighters, police, teachers, the list goes on and on. Parents, I mean, we're all in this together, right? So I'm gonna talk about the 12 different stages I will probably just add the um, the actual picture at some point, and I want to give credit to the one person that did give us the visual off of Instagram. It's called uh, the account is called the Present Psychologist, and you'll see me refer to it a little bit while I talk about them. But there's um, 12 different stages, and I'll just touch a few of them. I don't want to be too boring. I just kind of want to. Um, stay true to the podcast so far and just kind of ramble <laughs> if that makes any sense because um, sometimes I feel like it just makes it a little more personable so here I am in the mom mobile again um, soccer season just finished not long ago it was my birthday a couple of days ago so the greatest gift is being back on track and starting to record these podcasts again. I know that um, I meet with a lot of people and I talk with a lot of people and I love being able to record the things that I share with them and in hopes that during some hard moments you can revisit some of the categories and relearn and work on rewiring the brain so that you can live your best life. So. Um, I'm going to just spout off a few of the stages. So stage one um, says you feel there is a strong need to prove yourself. That's where your journey to burnout begins. So if you find yourself feeling like you have to earn your keep or prove your worth to not only to other people like your parents, your spouse, your siblings, your friends, employees, employers, but ultimately, where does it lead to? Yourself. If you feel like you have to prove value and worth to yourself, that's the first step to taking yourself to burnout. I'm gonna talk about all these different phases and I know it'll come and go um, and, and it'll wax and wane. I don't think these are meant to be in a one through 12 type of stage, like you can't revisit certain ones. It's kind of like the grieving process. It's messy and it just kind of happens as it happens and you process as you can. So I'll go to stage six and then stage 12 and then fill in all the gaps with what I've noticed in myself, in the industry, and what are some ways that we can mitigate or stay out of um, the severe burnout situation. So stage six is you deny the problems that arise due to work stress. So you're always making an excuse 
And a lot of times that might look like even something as simple as, um, as you know, it's my fault. Like I'm not diligent enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not efficient enough. I'm not educated enough. And that's like a very um, negative way to deal with burnout instead of having compassion and being kind to yourself. And then stage 12 finally says you mentally and physically collapse full burnout. So I hope to um, share this picture to the podcast and leave it there as a reference. Once again, it's called The Present Psychologist, located in Amsterdam, ne Amsterdam Netherlands, maybe. Um, you never know with uh, Instagram where they actually are. But I feel like there's a lot of value to everything that's being talked about in here. Um, there are a few stages I really want to point out. And, you know, the, the most important piece is understanding that you're... This is a chronic human problem that we feel like we are, you know, under delivering. And many, many times it just comes down to the fact that we are actually over expecting. And if you've ever been in pop culture here recently, there's a lot um, of conversation around not having expectations so that you don't get let down, which I don't also agree with as well. I feel like that's just kind of a, a cop out. And I think that is a lot, uh, that has a lot to do with the culture of anxiety and the cultural conditioning that we are going through as an anxious culture, a culture that tends to panic very quickly. And that's because we don't have direction a lot of times. So this culture of don't have expectations so that you don't get let down is actually setting us up for failure, to be honest, because we're not giving ourselves the credit that is due whenever we do meet expectations and exceed expectations. Very many times we actually exceed expectations. So uh, one of the stages I do want to talk to you about is um, you're conflicted and blame others or the situation. So do you see there's like this, this, these polarities that happen and it's very chaotic. The icons that are being used for burnout are little flames, which makes sense because there's, you know, if you've ever heard the uh, term, the straw that broke the camel's back, it really works. It's kind of like the, um, what's it called? The thistle that starts the fire. It's that one spark, that one thing that starts this wildfire or the snowballing of events, like all of this different terminology that we use to talk about little things adding up and turning into like one big mass exodus where ultimately your body will fail you because of all of the things that we've talked about in the previous episodes, such as the body keeps score, such as suppressing emotions and how it affects your central nervous system, such as you know, self-betrayal and what that does to our psyche, such as, and the list goes on and on where your brain is becoming slowly but surely rewired and is becoming not um, just untrue to who you truly are, to who you are and who we are as human. Because a lot of us come from a great place. We want to help others. We want to meet others' needs. We want to feel needed. We want to set others up for success. So think of you know, in some way, shape or form, we are leaders. 
No matter which way you slice it, we're all leaders in some way. Either you're an older sibling, you're a parent, you're a spouse, you're a leader in business, you're a teacher. You're, there's all these different scenarios. You're in sports. You're in, I mean, the list goes on, right? Where we want to meet other people's needs and we want to feel like we are contributing and adding value to that team. So instead of blame shifting and taking on these traits that are actually going to do us a disservice rather than a service, we need to just take ownership of our functionality and how we're addressing all of these different things. So if it is work, then fine, identify what it is. But, and if it's other people, then identify that as well. But within everything, if you can identify those items and come back to a quiet place and identify what you do control. So for me, for example, I realized whenever I was um, doing business and the multiple other things that I was doing that I still do to this day and people ask me all the time, they're like, I don't understand how you do it. Well, here's how I do it. I adopt the 70-30 rule. So that basically means that you are willing to accept a 70% approval rate of whatever you're delegating or whatever you're doing. What does that mean? That means that you're okay with leaving the perfectionist side away to the wayside and allowing yourself that 30% buffer. So whether you are allowing your kids to do the chores and they might leave you know, 30% sticky floors, whatever it is, right? Or they're doing the dishes and 30% of the dishes are gonna end up being dirty when you get them out of the dishwasher. Or you're having employees do something and you've delegated a task. A lot of the times it's gonna fall short and it's not going to be at the same caliber or at the same quality that what you would actually perform it at. So that's what 70-30 means. It means you're okay Remember we talked about even in the previous podcast about the detox retreat and about metabolic and and how our metabolism works. And remember that's that 30% that our metabolism even throws out of our nutritional intake. And it's like, we don't need this. Even if you were to eat 100% correctly, 30% is gone. So why would you then, right? Why would you put forth all of your effort giving your 100% all the time which will burn you out, even in dietary, if you think of yo-yo diets or um, people that go like really hard from the beginning of the year and they're like, I'm gonna go to the gym every morning at 5 a.m. You burn out after a while because routine is wonderful, but breaking routine will keep you grounded because that's what makes us human as well. So you don't get burnt out with your routine and the situations that you've been creating and the circumstances you've been creating to keep you grounded. I love routine. I'm a creature of habit, but I had also noticed during my career as an ICU nurse, even though I was critical care float pool, at one point I would get, you know, floated a lot to CVICU. And this is nothing negative, you know, it can be your cup of tea, it can, you know, everything. But at when you reach a certain point of knowledge and experience, you reach that cap and that kind of like sky, you know, the, the blue sky effect or whatever it's called, 
you reach that cap and it ends up being that, you know, it's the same stuff, different day type of situation. So that's why, you know, another thing that I've shared has been like, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. This is why that concept is so important. And this is why as professionals, we are required to have continuing education credits, right? Every year you have to have a certain number of hours of courses that you're participating in, of um, literature that you're reading up on, evidence-based practice, things like that, because we're ever evolving humans. We learn more every day. We learn about better ways to do things and our higher efficiency. And then um, that gives us that that multi-dimensional and diverse um, way of doing life, which will actually help us from getting burnt out. And being burnt out doesn't necessarily mean that you hate the world, that you don't want to be around people, that you're out of love, that you're anything like that. Being burnt out feels a lot like um, numbness. You might feel numb to emotions. Um, lack of empathy, obviously. I think that's something that everyone can kind of relate to. So when you lose your empathy for people and for different situations and scenarios, it's because you've burnt yourself out. You've run on fumes for so long that you no longer have the fuel to keep going in the way that you'd like to. I'm going to bounce around to another stage. Let's see which one. Oh, that one that one works really well with us actually. Stage nine, depersonalization happens. You do not feel like yourself. So this is stage nine. Your, your, your body's not broken down yet, but you feel numb inside. You feel like you are disassociating. Do you remember when we talked about complex PTSD and what the difference is and why it's different than PTSD? It's because it takes time and years. And what I remember learning, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but what I remember having a great epiphany whenever I went to one of my first therapists, he gave me a worksheet. He wouldn't talk. He was a male therapist. I would just wait and wait and wait. And I and a lot of people that try and do therapy, they're like, I can't do it. They're, they just sit there and listen. Well, yeah, that's their job. They're supposed to sit and listen to you. They're trying to get to know you for the first four sessions, at least, to be honest, if they say and give you any kind of feedback, you should be happy. But this particular therapist sent me home with a little workbook and worksheet. And it was, um, it was a scoring tool for um, stress. And I think I have maybe mentioned this once before. But the normal stress level was something like, I don't know, I think um, maybe... Uh, 15 or 20 something around that number and whenever I tabulated and I calculated all of my stress indicators and the scores for it I think I came up to something like 115 it was massive that was the biggest eye-opener for me personally um, and I realized that I had been under that kind of stress for probably a decade at least if not more tangible stress. I had effectively burnt myself completely out of any kind of emotional stamina that I had. And we do that. And we do that for the people that we love. But we need to do things in the meantime that will 
counteract the burnout and fuel and add fuel for us. Um, let me see another one. Um, stage seven. So this is a stage before the, the depersonalization. You withdraw from social life and family as well. Do these stages remind you maybe of um, clinical major depressive disorder? Because it sounds like it. Um, depression has a stigma that sounds a lot like the burnout fa uh, phases, but depression can also manifest in a very different way where you um, are not going to maybe um, be stuck in bed every single day. But you might be more of an avoidant personality and be very flighty, which means that you're not grounded, you're not you know, staying within your routine, your daily routine, you're not enjoying your life and you're actually seeking out things to disassociate. So remember CPTSD, there's a dissociation that happens where you are trying to remove yourself from the stressful or uh, situation that is burning you out and into a different scenario altogether, whether it's fantasizing mentally, whether it's books, whether it's video games, whether it's writing, all these things that we call coping mechanisms are actually our little escapes, okay? And there's nothing wrong with escapes, but there is everything wrong with living in your escapes. So make sure that if you are doing those things to where they're affecting your actual responsibilities, right? So if your escape is, I'll use one of mine, dancing. I love dancing. My kids know it. All my friends know it. And that is one of my coping mechanisms. I love to go and cut a rug. I didn't start dancing until I was like 31 and my siblings took me out for the first time. But here's the deal. If I love going dancing as my escape, and I choose to go dancing every single night, which I'm not going to lie. If I go on a spring break, I'm probably going to be out dancing every night. But if that affects your performance at your job, if that affects your performance within your family, if that affects your emotional stability, if that affects your school life, if that affects and the list goes on with all of the things that make you who you are and compose you as an individual negatively, then it's time to dial it back. You cannot live in your escape without it affecting your reality. And the reality is that we all have responsibility and it's called balance for a reason, right? We need to balance our lives. We need a great work-life balance. And life, it seems like you know, work has become this really compartmentalized item and everyone is trying to detach it completely from our life. And then on the other spectrum of things, I know people that don't have a life outside of work. And so work is their life and that's the only place that they get their socialization. And so when they go home, they don't really know what to do with their lives other than what? Sit in front of a TV vegetatively, eat a TV dinner, maybe order, you know, Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever you're doing or whatever your escape is. So then what are you doing really, to be honest? You either have work where there's a lot of ultra responsibility and you have the escape and there is no you. 
There's no individuality. There's nothing in between that. And that can be really detrimental to you as an individual. And what I recommend for you to be able to figure out what that balance needs to be is what are the things that you enjoyed most as a kid before you had responsibilities, right? For me, it was what? It wasn't dancing. That's a new thing. So it's not like you're not going to come up with new things that you love as an adult. That maybe, like in my case, you're growing up more religious, we weren't really allowed to dance, right? To express ourselves in that way. So it was very taboo. And then I got out there and I was like, hey, I can get down with this. I like dancing. That's a new hobby. But as an adult, I remember my best moments being either being on a boat or um, playing tennis or socializing while playing soccer or going to the gym and lifting weights with a friend of mine or listening to music and raging to it and yelling off the top of my lungs in the car as an adolescent. So those are things that I still enjoy doing and very much make who I am socializing with people, talking, problem solving, talking about philosophical things, um, reading some books, self-help books, or watching Netflix, you know, binge serial, watching different things. So that's what I'm saying. Like we can come up with all of these different scenarios that happen in between our escapes and our actual work life. That's what it means to have work-life balance. Escapes cannot be your life. Okay, that's not what work-life balance is. Escapes should be what? Whatever percentage you say it should be of our lives. So if you enjoy going out, but you don't really have a good way of keeping yourself accountable, maybe instead of going out every weekend, you select one weekend out of the month. And your friends will then know this is their weekend. Or... If you're the reverse side and you know that for you, it's very easy to work, 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 and then come home and work, 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 you need to get in touch with either a good friend of yours that can hold you accountable. And on certain days, even if your house is a pigsty and you haven't done everything, those are your days where you're achieving balance. You're either going and having a sleepover and Netflix and watching and conversational or whatever your, you know, thing is that you want to do is going to be to escape, right? Reality. Or um, if you're accustomed to working two jobs and never having time off, creating that balance where you say, okay, once I save this amount of money, I'm going to cut back my hours on my second job. And that time is going to be just for me to follow whatever my pa whatever it is that your passion is, whether you're writing a book, reading a book, um, listening to music, going for a hike, car shopping, house shopping, anything that you feel like you enjoy doing and you don't get to do very often. So it's all about the balance in life. And a lot of times people think that it has to be these extravagant things that we do. So for, you know, in the healthcare industry, because most of my employees work in healthcare and or some sort of services, I make it a point for every quarter, some sort of small service um, incentive to be given to our staff. So for example, maybe it'll be that they get to go and get their nails done. There's a gift card for nails or for a massage 
or for a free stretch or things that require for them to service their bodies. But that's every three months. So whenever I went to a new networking opportunity the week before last, I was in Seattle and was just there to support a fellow entrepreneur of mine. And they had a guest speaker who specializes on grief. I think I will reach out to her and we will probably do a session together and work together for our nonprofit. And, um, but she was talking about the different stages of, of grief and she actually coined the Kubler-Ross um, grief um, graph, I believe. I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's the original stages of grief, but she puts them more into context and did her PhD dissertation on it. And we talked and whenever they opened up the floor for questions, I asked, I, I raised my hand and I asked, you know, how do I counteract the burnout and compassion fatigue that inherently happens with our staff? You know, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but you know, it's, it's a lot more simple for us to counteract that for ourselves as humans, even though we may not be aware of it, you become aware and then you have a lot more control over your life. But how do I, as a business owner, not feel like I'm abusing my employees in, you know, only addressing their, you know, needs or, you know, trying to balance that out every quarter because I can't afford as much as I'd love to, to hand out all these different services every week. And a lot of times people don't even make the time to be able to go and actually get those services. I have people that took six months to go and get their massage that I gifted them and I had to hound them about it. So, um, what she told me I was actually really interested in and she talked about, um, in between patients or residents or services, the caregivers taking their time or nurses taking their time to take a deep cleansing breath or two or five, taking two minutes to themselves and sitting somewhere and taking cleansing inhale and exhale. Remember we talked about Wim Hof and we talked about in the detox retreat one, how it provides that mental clarity, alkalinizes the body, promotes that balance in the pH of the actual entire system, which helps our nervous system and everything, right? So then I had that, that moment where I was like, oh, really? It's that simple. That being said, you can't undo years of burnout and abuse that we've subjected our physical bodies to without actually taking the time that we need to decrease the score, right? If our body keeps score, then logical science would only make sense if we could actually take steps backwards and decrease the level of stress that our body has harbored inside of it, right? So if we can do a combination and holistically come and really nurture our bodies and our mental and our mental health and our spiritual beings in a way where we can complete all on all fronts and all systems. So you know, creating the boundaries, the appropriate boundaries. If you have a business, having a second phone and being able to turn that phone off 
so that it doesn't all come to your personal phone or you know detaching from work which hey <laughs> I'm telling you everything that I have had struggles with and had to do right I've even taught my kids they are not supposed to use electronics in their bedrooms especially not in their beds so many many times I've abused my own body and mentality I'm exhausted from work I just want to lay down but I know I have to do more work so I'll take that downtime and I'll have my laptop and I'll be doing work in my bed and I've noticed that those times if I make it a habit it's much, much harder for my brain to unplug and to realize that my bed and my bedroom is a sanctuary for me to recharge my batteries, for me to unplug from the rest of the world, for me to be more responsible of my health, my body's health, my mental health, my spiritual health, and to turn on a meditation and things like that as opposed to working once again, turning the brain back on and then struggling you know that's why a lot of people um talk about you know there's a pill for everything there's a pill for the anxiety there's a pill for sleeping there's a pick-me-up pill there's all these different pills i could name them all if you want me to i will and i hope you're not using these to survive but if you are using them to survive you can taper down don't cut cold turkey so if you're taking for example let's go through a normal day right you wake up in the morning and you're struggling to be awake because you're exhausted because we're burnt out um and i mean i use my coffee right coffee's like the simple guilty pleasure of life but if you're taking a pill like adderall um which is an upper and to wake you up and to help you stay focused and then you're turning around and you're you end up having anxiety because it's such an upper and your body's in fight or flight mode and it's inflamed and you aren't addressing your actual physical and emotional needs and you end up being in this moment of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm panicking, I can't, you know, focus, I, I forgot to eat, so now I'm even more jittery, I'm having more caffeine, having palpitations, things like that, and then you take an anxiety pill, a downer. And then you go home and what do you do? maybe you're still working or your mind is still in like overdrive mode and you're trying to go to sleep so you take your you know trazodone or your ambien and that knocks you out so you can actually get some sort of rest but because your subconscious has been so um bombarded with all of these needs and all of this survival type mode these are synthetic drugs okay they are not made to be a sustainable way of life they were made to bridge a short gap of someone's psychotic episodes or sleep deprivation because of certain disease processes like PTSD, like insomnia, like things like that. Now, definitely check with your healthcare provider. If you're on these for an underlying disease process, I get it. I understand you're doing your best and try to add as many non-pharmacological interventions as you can such as working out such as healthy diet such as cutting out alcohol such as all of these different things that will help balance you more um not synthetically naturally organically so that you can cut back your doses of synthetic stuff right so we can use it to take the edge off or to help bridge us while we're changing our lifestyles. 
but don't plan on using them for years and years because there is a chemical dependency and a brain rewiring that happens as you're using these items. So make sure that you are doing everything that you can to um, allow for your body to try and buffer. That's why it's so important for children to have their own bed and to sleep in their own bed. Not because we're mean parents, but because we're trying to teach them how to be adults and how to be able to sleep in a bed alone and how to self-soothe, right? We don't let kids sit there and cry at night self-soothing because we're mean, but rather because we need that mechanism. That's a mechanism that stays with us for the rest of our lives. So instead of going ahead and popping an Ativan or taking a hit of weed or nicotine vape pens or things like that, which are becoming our pacifiers, our adult pacifiers, let's call it what it is, everybody, okay? Like I like my share of different experiments and experiencing different items, but that's not to say that it's gonna become a part of daily routine, hourly routine, every five minute routine. That's an important piece that we need to be able to identify. Do you have an addictive personality? Do you not? So that you can make sure that you are holding yourself accountable because the last thing anybody in your life wants including your friends, your partners, your parents, your siblings, your children. They don't want to be your everlasting accountability partner. Okay? People are going to be honest with you if you're a safe person to be honest with. But no mistakes. Everybody wants to love you unconditionally and love you for who you are and for everything that you're doing. And don't put them in that position where you need an accountability partner. Your best accountability partner is yourself, okay? So learn all of these things. Write it down on a piece of paper. Write it down on sticky notes and put it on your mirror, which you're gonna see every morning. Write it on a whiteboard. I don't care what you do, but you become accountable for your own option, for your own actions. That way, the people that are in your life can just stay busy loving you. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that actually help us so much in these burnout journeys? Can you see the, all of the connections coming together? Whereas some people may look and say, oh my gosh, I'm depressed. And realizing, oh my gosh, I'm actually burnt out. That's something that can be undone. You know, and there are times when people are clinically depressed and it needs chemistry to be rebalanced in the brain, you know, combination, maybe cognitive behavioral therapy, any kind of neurological type of interventions. Yes. You know, once again, we use these substances as bridges, but we shouldn't be in a place where we depend on them solely. And I don't take this lightly. I'm a nurse. I know what I'm talking about. Bipolar disorder even. If you have anything like that. Anyone that you talk to that has their um, condition under control, especially bipolar disorder, they will tell you that they utilize multiple different ways to keep it under control. It's not just the synthetic drugs that um, bring equilibrium and balance. It's also working out. It's also getting more than seven hours of sleep at night. It's well-balanced nutrition. It's having the right people in your life that speak life into you. It's about having therapy or counseling. 
Let's stop having this culture of just uh, diagnosis, right? It's okay. Diagnoses are important. It's important to be self-aware and everything. But let's not make this, you know, our new culture and our new norm. Because we were created in such a way in which our body can achieve balance. Our brain can achieve balance. We may have different substances that we need to help us get to that balance. But for the most part, our bodies have been created very resiliently. If we could only decrease the amount of stress and the amount of the cortisol hormone that we have running through our veins, that our pancreas and our thyroid and our uh, our thalamus and all of our different, you know, regulatory bodily systems are pumping through our veins to just keep us alive, you know, um, we could have a lot more, um, a lot better results than what we are having currently. So, um, and I will say, you know, I've talked to many different people, um, about burnout stages of burnout, just taking a moment, even before you go home, putting a guided meditation, even if it's just five minutes, there's the calm app. Jay Shetty is really good. Um, Jason Stevenson. I always talk about him. He's my homie. Um, he has a lot of good, even in Instagram, little short reels. Reels are 90 seconds long. Taking something to communicate to your body and sitting back, taking a deep cleansing breath in through your nose, pursed lips out through your mouth, and it slows down your breathing or taking the big Wim Hof breaths that are fast for 90 seconds and then holding your breath the last breath and allowing that gas exchange to happen and that metabolic pH balance to happen that's going to make such a huge difference and it's going to bring your body into a centered place so that whenever you're going to pick up your kids, you're in a great disposition. When you're going to work, you don't feel overwhelmed. When you're going home from work, you don't feel overwhelmed. Hopefully you're addressing whatever stresses you out at home. Um, if it's not just you and it's something within your surroundings, being able to identify that and either talk about it or write it down and communicate it with your partner or your family and being able to say, hey, when this happens or when I'm coming home, I'm feeling like this and I'm having to do this. Can we identify what's going on? Obviously, if you're in an abusive relationship, I don't recommend really opening up that way um, to the partner necessarily. Do some more research, reach out to your local domestic violence chapter and um, get some help with maybe some more clarity on are you in an abusive relationship or is it just you? If you're confused, that merits bringing someone else in to help you decrease the confusion. And last but not least, I would love to talk about the five love languages. If you've never read the book, there are so many different variations. Now, same chap, uh, same uh, author, Gary Chapman, I think. Don't quote me on that. Look it up. You'll know. But I remember reading it for the first time when I had just had... Um, my second child. I was breastfeeding and I had a lot of time on my hands. So, um, there are the five different love languages. There's acts of service, physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, 
and ooh, what's the fifth one? Quality time. Um, there's a free test you can take online to help you rank the different ones, but I'm going to give you an illustration and this is where I'll leave this off at. And this works for yourself, first of all, and after that, for anyone else that you care about, including people that you take care of, including your kids, your parents, your family, employees, employers, supervisors, anybody that you want to have a good relationship with, it would be wise to find out what their, excuse me, what their main love language is. And some people may not know about it, but even if you just name them off, they might tell you, I feel like this one is it. There's usually a first and then a runner up and then everything else that falls kind of lower to the totem pole. Okay. But if you observe someone enough and you get to know them enough, you'll kind of get to see what actually makes them tick in a way, right? So if someone gets super excited whenever they receive a gift, then gifts might be their number one. Or if someone, and, and sometimes people communicate love in their primary love language. So if there's someone that's always giving you great verbal affirmation and validation, that may be their love language. So just be very aware of that. But this is the illustration I wanted to give. So everyone has an internal love tank, right? And it's in the book too. Everyone has an internal love tank. If you can find out which fuel is their preferred and premium fuel to just dump, 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 that's where the blind investment comes from too, right? You just keep on investing blindly in that tank. You're fueling. So if I'm um, a gifts person, and you know that's my main love language that's what i respond to the quickest and the most effectively and you keep on giving gifts now gifts don't necessarily have to be financial in nature they don't have to be expensive they don't have to be pricey but even something that has some intention behind it like a little note or a card or you know things like that but a material thing something tangible if you keep on giving me a gift every time we're around each other or more often than not and then follow up with another you know my secondary language you're going to be filling up my tank so every time I see you guess what I like being around you okay but um if you talk about yourself for example if your main love language is a an act of service or physical touch a lot of men say physical touch is their main love language and a lot of men haven't even done the test, so I would recommend that you do it. But if you know of someone that physical touch is their main love language, it doesn't necessarily translate to only sex, right? You might just sit beside someone, and especially if it's someone like, like your kid, for example. If physical touch is their love language, obviously that doesn't apply, right? I'm talking about partnership. But... If someone's love language is physical touch, even just grabbing them on the arm while you walk by or um, giving them a, an extra long hug of appreciation whenever you're thankful and you're telling them thank you 
demonstrating it with a hug or uh, shaking someone's hand or whenever you're laying, if this is like a domestic partner type of situation, intimate partner, laying beside that person and watching a movie with them, but laying your legs on their legs where you're like, hey, I'm here. I may not want to snuggle because I'm hot natured, but I'm here and I love you and I want to communicate that I love you. Different little bitty acts that will actually act as fuel and will fill up that love tank so that whenever it's time for them to be depositing into your love tank, they're coming from a place where their love tank is full. They're content. They're not going to come from a place of, oh, I guess I better do this or I'm not going to get this. So stop withholding that person's love language if you know it. Give to them because from abundance, they will give back. Once again, this doesn't apply to an abusive relationship. Obviously, you could give your soul and everything and it won't be enough. But if you've identified that this is a person that you love, you trust, or even just respect at work, you're going to know how to communicate to them and you're going to be teaching them how to communicate to you. So for example, if you, I'll use caregivers for an example. If one of my caregivers... Um, love language is um, acts of service and then before they come on shift if I'm the one that's going to be going to they're going to be replacing I will make sure that I've done some tasky things that make the beginning of their shift feel easier something as simple as emptying the trash cans the waste baskets I'll empty the waste baskets and they'll come in and I'll tell them if it if it's not already my right if it's not already like my responsibility and I'll tell them I'll make it a point to tell them that I did that for them that's an act of service but it's also a gift right so all of these things we all speak all languages and they all speak to us in some way it's just some of them are going to be a lot more hard-hitting in a positive way than others they'll have more weight so if you look if you think of the of the love tank and you think of like all the minority languages that the person doesn't speak if you throw in there like pieces of sand or pieces of small pebbles how much longer is it going to take you to fill up that love tank than if you put in their main love language, which is the bigger boulders or the big rocks. It won't take you as long, right, to fill it up. And then you can fill with the smaller stuff and the sand and the pebbles will fill in the gaps in between everything else. And that compiles like who we are, right? How we communicate love. If you've ever taken any kind of communication course, you know that 70% of our communication is nonverbal in nature. So whatever we speak, that may be someone's love language, don't get me wrong, but many, many times, whenever we're communicating, um, here comes that 30% again, oh my God. Um, <laughs> there's, um, I think it's only 30%, the, the verbal, like even, that we even retain it. I don't know, you guys look it up, put it in the comments link in YouTube, let me know, I'm curious to find out, but I really hope that this podcast will help people that are experiencing burnout currently, that have experienced burnout in the past and are afraid of experiencing it again. I'm one of those people, I survived extreme and total, complete burnout 
many, many different times and um, recalibrating and balancing my life has been so beneficial. I've never been happier in my life. I've never been able to give as much as sustainably as I have been. I've always been a giver. I've always been an empath. But whenever you come from a place of, you know, security where you know that you're being taken care of, even if everything else crumbles and falls by yourself at the very least, you come from a very different place and it's never really hard to give. Okay. So that's my two cents. Uh, caregiver burnout, burnout in general, compassion fatigue. I hope that you all take care of yourselves and enjoy the rest of your week. Okay. Peace.